Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that tickets are now on sale for the next series of Culture First events. If you head to the link in your podcast player, you can grab your free ticket to our virtual events happening in APAC, North America, and EMEA. Join us as we gather to explore ideas, share experiences, dive into the data, and gain the clarity and skills we all need to turn current and future uncertainty into opportunity. By reworking work, we can build a better world of work for everyone. So head to the link where you're listening to the show and grab your ticket today. All right, let's get started. Gathering well is also an extraordinary process for creativity, for collaboration, for breakthrough science. It's not just about how you're making people feel. It's also about what human beings are able to discover and to build when they're able to interact in ways that are fruitful. Culture first. 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 I'm Damon Klotz. And this is Culture First. I need you to be honest with me. Have you sat in a meeting? It could be a virtual meeting or an in-person meeting. We're about halfway through the allotted time. You stop and ask yourself, I have no idea what this meeting is about or why I was even asked to be here. It's okay. You can tell me if this has happened to you. Some of you might be thinking, well, Damon, not only has it happened, I was in a meeting like that earlier this week or maybe even earlier today. You'll soon learn that you are not alone in that experience. But luckily, there's something we can do about it. In this episode, we're going to learn about the art of gathering with my guest, Priya Parker. You'll learn more about Priya in a second when we head over to the interview, but I thought it was vital for you to know that not only did Priya wow our audiences last year at our Culture First Global event, Brené Brown actually asked her to come in and help make over one of her team meetings. Now, If Brené Brown needs help with her team meetings, I can safely assume that we all need to be listening to this episode. Before we begin, I have two asks of you to help get the most out of this episode. Firstly, I was hoping that you could think of a meeting that you're currently the host of that maybe needs some improvement. This could be a company all hands, a daily stand-up, or even your weekly team meeting. I invite you to use that meeting as a reference point as Priya shares ideas and inspirations for how we can gather better. And my other ask of you is this. I'm sure you're also an attendee of some meetings that need a little bit of help. Now, it would be way too obvious for you to send this link directly to someone else who's hosting that meeting and saying, please listen to this. So I suggest maybe posting a link to this episode in a company Slack channel or in a team email to help inspire all of our meeting hosts to gather better. Now, if you think one of your colleagues is going to need even more reason to listen, well, tell them just to listen to the end. Because if they do, they're going to learn what makes Ted Lasso a world-class host and what we can learn from Logan Roy as he uses the tyranny of structurelessness and ambivalence to wield his power during meetings at Waystar Royco. All right, so let's head over to my interview with Priya Parker. All right, so today on the Culture First podcast, I'm joined by Priya Parker. Now, 
Priya, when people look you up online, they might learn things about you like that you're a conflict resolution strategist, that you're a facilitator and an author. But if a curious 10-year-old walks up to you and says, excuse me, ma'am, what do you do for work? How do you answer? (laughs) I think I would say something like, I help people fight better. Interesting. If, if, if this was a combative 10-year-old, that they might have like a lot of follow-up <laughs> questions for you. So if they said, ma'am, how do you help me fight better? <laughs> I would, <laughs> how do well, you, I, you know, I think this is one of the things I do. I think I would say I help, I help groups of people be thoughtful about how they spend their time and have the conversations that sometimes adults avoid having. And we are definitely going to be touching on that subject. But one thing um, that I thought might be nice to kind of start with is just like the power of the opening, which I know is really important to you in the first 5%. And, you know, something I think about a lot when it comes to, you know, employee experience or just designing an experience, designing an event, or even just designing a conversation, I think getting the first 5% is just so critical. And I wanted to spend the first 5% here with you with some gratitude, if that's okay with you. (laughs) Sure. So, a couple of things I wanted to sort of, I guess, um, show some gratitude towards is that actually your book, The Art of Gathering, is actually the most gifted book I've ever given out. Wow. So, firstly, I just wanted to say thank you for writing it. Wow, that is so lovely. Thank you. Yeah. So, my background is like I, my first ever corporate job was actually in a learning and development department and I, you know, learned the art of facilitation and I'm a trained facilitator and, you know, through community building and all the different work I've done over the last sort of 15 years. I guess just the experiences that we can create for people is just so powerful. And I feel like so much of what I've been thinking about your book actually ended up putting into words for me. And one of the things, uh, one of the stories I want to sort of share in this opening with you is that I've had this practice that uh, a lot of the people um, who know me call the why we here, why we here practice. And (laughs) I do this a lot at events and it's basically saying, why are we here? And I talk about like whatever the, the... gathering or the container is but then secondly like why are we physically here and i think the most Mm. powerful experience i had um doing this was at an event in australia where we brought together a series of um a a group of like chief people officers from all these different companies and we took them into the blue mountains outside of their typical environment and i did the why are we here why are we here and some people found it really, really powerful and other people reminded me that words really matter because we described it as an intimate gathering. And it was so funny that like the word intimate just meant something very different to us. So like at Culture Ramp, we were like, this is such an intimate gathering. It's 90 people. Typically our events are like hundreds or thousands. And then some people were like, when you invited me to an intimate gathering, I thought there was going to be 12 of us sitting in a circle. <laughs> That's such a lovely example um, that words have power, but also so does context. And so you can use the same word and we hear it completely differently based on our mental models or cultural models or, or past experiences that also use that same you know, word choice. <laughs> I, it's so lovely to hear both that, that you find my book relevant. You know, I, I wrote the book in part to help non-facilitators kind of learn what the rest of us are taught to do. Um, and in part because so much of the kind of hosting or gathering advice, at least in, in the U.S. where I'm based, focuses on kind of outsourcing wisdom of gathering to experts on on things. So like 
or or on the things of the gathering. So chefs, or if you look in the bookshop, you know, the the food aisle is sort of all about gathering and hosting or lighting or floral design. And I wanted to write a book kind of for people to think about how to actually create connection, you know, across people, between people. And so I'm delighted, um, truly delighted when a fellow facilitator also sees not just themselves in it, but perhaps another way to think about what so many of us have been trying to get a lot of people to do for a very long time. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. And and I, I, I love the why are we here? Why are we here? I, I almost wonder how many times, how many times one could ask that question and then how how many ways one can answer that um but but i think that that exercise is kind of gets to the heart of uh, of the art of gathering which is which is asking and becoming more intentional about you know literally physically spiritually politically why are we here it's definitely one of those onion questions you can keep peeling back the layers and eventually you kind of get to like the heart of actually purpose and we'll certainly touch on that, um, you know, in our sort of next section. But just to kind of wrap up this like opening um, section, the other thing that I wanted to sort of just share with you is that, you know, I've been incredibly lucky to interview some of my sort of heroes in the people and culture space on this podcast before, like, you know, the Esther Perels and the Simon Sinek's. And when I do, you know, interview people that I know or know their work really well, I still do an incredible amount of background research. And I just want to say that the background research for this episode with you was actually one of my favorites because you've been on three of my favorite podcasts of all time and some of them actually recently. So you've had a couple episodes on Brené Brown, which are on Brené Brown's podcast, which I highly recommend people to listen to. But the other two um, is Hurry Slowly mm. and On Being. And on being was just so special because I actually, you know, I spent most of my career as like a keynote speaker and someone who was very much like, listen to me, people, like I've got the answers. And then more recently, I've switched in this, in this, you know, hosting this podcast for the last few years to actually, it's not about necessarily my thoughts, but it's actually the term that I borrowed from Krista Tippett is being a generous listener and actually showing up with so much interest in you and your story and being so generous with how you think about the world that I want this to be one of the best, you know, interviews that you can ever be part of just because of that sort of that research and that listening. And I just want to say that those three podcasts that you've been on were just some of my favorites. And I just wanted to um, sort of share that with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, all three women in that case are uh, extraordinary listeners and structurers of conversation. And I think model leadership through how they create and contain a, a conversation. Definitely, definitely. And I, I've, I've only got two books on me. Um, oh no, three books on me like right now because I'm not currently at my home. I have uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I have your book. And then I also have uh, Krista Tippett's book about sort of, you know, the art of, of living, which is just uh, three very uh, powerful reminders. But we can sit here and talk about books all day, but that's not what we're going to be here to talk about. We're going to be talking about, you know, the art, the art of gathering and how we come together. And I thought maybe to start this conversation, we should talk about the category and purpose of this of this podcast. And I know that you define a gathering as needing to have three people, but I always feel like I'm trying to hold space for my listeners in this conversation and that they count as a third person. So would you agree that this could be a gathering or is this just a conversation? I think podcasts are a very interesting format of of gathering, in part because there are multiple gatherings over time. So there's 
you and I in this moment, and and in a sense, you're imagined the third leg of the stool, right? The the listener. And then each listener accesses this conversation or this 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 conversation between you and I, and it's through their presence that it becomes a gathering. But different listeners listen at different moments in time, right? And so one of these gatherings may be somebody walking in the park in Adelaide, and someone else may download this at another moment, and they may be walking down the street in Brooklyn. And so podcast as a medium is a very interesting expansion, I think, of gatherings, because the listener, I think, actually kind of consummates the gathering by their presence, but that different listeners are entering and exiting at different moments of time. I love that. Yeah. And I think there's also one of the things that I try and, you know, encourage listeners to do is like have their own conversations about these topics. And I actually had a listener share with me recently that one of my episodes actually encouraged a meeting or a gathering or a conversation inside of their workplace to discuss the actual topics from an episode and how that was showing up in their workplace. So I kind of see this as a potential gathering, but as we maybe define this, we could say that the category of this gathering is a podcast interview, but I wanted to share with you the purpose because I know that you really deeply believe in category and purpose and getting these things right. So, can I share with you the purpose? Please. So, what I wrote was the purpose of this gathering is to have a deep conversation about what is worthy of our collective time in the workplace and how it should be structured. How does, how does that sound? Beautiful. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So let's let's lay the table for the art of gathering. I think it's really important to get some of the contextual pieces and have the definitions shared with their, our audience. So I wanted to maybe start with your definition of gathering, the sort of the function and need part of gathering, why people confuse category and purpose, and sort of the role of the host and generous authority. Because I feel like these are like, like you said earlier, like even though I've been a facilitator for you know my entire professional career, getting some of these terms right and sharing these definitions with other people has really helped me. So let's lay the table with some of those. Maybe we can start with how you define gathering. I define gathering as anytime three or more people, so it's really about group life, three or more people come together for a purpose with a beginning, middle, and end. And so gathering is really a unit of time that ends. Um, to, to perhaps make a distinction, a gathering and a community are two different things. So gathering can create a sense of community and communities can have gatherings, but I'm really trying to make a distinction in this, in, in almost a, a technical word of gathering, because it's something that we are all doing all of the time before the pandemic, during the pandemic in a different form and in this moment. And when we begin to look at it as a as a happening, as an event that we can actually shape, that's when we can actually begin to deconstruct the anatomy of what creates transformational gatherings because we can actually see it as a unit that is shapeable. I love that. Yeah. I feel like if someone was to do sort of a um, text anal- analysis of every episode and transcript that I, I put out on the Culture First podcast, probably the word I use the most outside of maybe the title of the show is the word container. Um, and I just deeply think about that word and like shaping containers for conversations. Cause like one of my little taglines is I, you know, I truly believe that we're all one conversation away from changing the rest of our life. And I feel mm-hmm. like getting the container right for that conversation is like why those conversations can be transformational. Beautiful. So I think one of the things that is also good to define here is why people often confuse category and purpose. And how do you see this maybe playing out in the workplace? So 
one of the mistakes we make when we gather is that we assume that the purpose is obvious and shared. And because we assume that the purpose is obvious and shared, we don't pause and actually define what the purpose is for the gathering. We skip too quickly to form. So a board meeting, you know, you, I, I joke, one brown table, 12 white men. Uh, I mean, we have these are mental models in our head. A wedding, you know, imagining somebody, in a, depending on your culture, in a white dress or in a red dress, you know, walking down, walking down an aisle or walking around in a circle. Um, and, and because we skip too quickly to form or to category, we don't actually pause to ask, what is the need here? And we start focusing too quickly on the form where, you know, who's bringing the, where's the AV equipment going to come from? What the food going to be? And we conflate category and purpose. And so then we end up following forms and, and kind of standard protocols that may have been relevant to some community at some point, but may not actually be relevant to the need at hand. I mean, in the workplace, I give this example in the book. When I wrote The Art of Gathering, I spent time beyond just beyond my own examples as a facilitator interviewing over a hundred types of gatherers in all types of contexts. So a World Cup hockey coach, a choir conductor, a board chair of a of a company, and and asked them, you know, what and why, like and they were all people who other people credited with creating transformative gatherings. And one of the things they, they all had in common, almost all of them, was that they didn't have lines in their head of what a gathering was supposed to look like. And one example in a workplace is, is, is from the New York Times. They um, kind of historically, iconically had this meeting that it's called the Page One Meeting. It was a, it's a meeting that was more than 50 years old. It was invented to serve a very specific need at a very specific time, which is to help the editors and the journalists decide every day what seven pieces of news should make the front page of the paper. And culturally and historically, this was at a time where what often was on the front page of the New York Times determined what policymakers were talking about the next day, determined what people were reading, determined the cultural context was was what went out on over all of the AP wires of like, this is what people should be thinking about today. And so as a meeting, it was an incredibly important, iconic meeting in the in the paper. It was it was it was conducted around what was described to me as almost a King Arthur like round table where the editors would come with their with their lowly offerings and offer it to the Olympic gods to decide their fate, you know, this, this kind of really ri- ritualistic, but very powerful meeting. And I, I remember hearing from, from journalists that when, when uh, kind of on the first day or first week of, of being a cub reporter, you were, what part of the orientation was you got to sit in on this meeting. And anyway, long story short, over the course of, you know, the 90s, 2000s, this small thing called the internet, you know, came to fruition. This 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 website called, you know, nytimes.com popped up, and and basically over the course of two decades, pe- the the source of news changed for even how their own readers got the news. The majority of readers got it from the website, not the front page. Then they hit a mark where the majority of their own readers or people who read the New York Times didn't even come to the website. They they access it through someone's tweet or through social media, and yet. 
the most iconic meeting at the times was this kind of stodgy old meeting um, of of uh, of of the best kind of minds in the paper arguing over what should be on the physical paper. And long story short, the the new executive editor, Dean Baquet, came in and began to realize this is a ritual that people are very attached to, but it no longer actually meets the need of where we are at a, as a paper and what we actually need to be discussing. And so he began to over the course of a few months, shift the time of the meeting, extract the decision of the pretty small decision now, I mean, not relatively within the context of what they're talking about, to a separate meeting, invited more people to that meeting that wasn't just the editors, but the audio team, the consumer news team, different bureaus, different desks, and began to shift what the actual, the the organ, the sort of the central nervous system in terms of the most important meeting at the times is, looks like, is for the time of day, because he started to realize that they were actually arguing about the wrong thing and that the nature of their work had changed. And so the the meeting itself also has to change. I love that story. And I, I remember when I first read it, because it really gets down to the heart of like, what is the deepest need of this gathering? And actually, while the meeting might have been formed around this idea of what gets printed on that front page, you know, the deepest need of this gathering was actually like, how do we maybe make decisions about what's important? Like, what is the impact of like the, the decisions that we make and actually feeling like thinking a little bit more deeply, you know, less about what actually gets, you know, like printed and actually more so how are we actually making some of these decisions and like how does this information get out there? And I think, you know, I encourage everyone listening to really like look for those moments of discovery when you find the deepest need of this gathering and actually ask some of those, you know, what we were jokingly calling onion questions earlier about going that little bit layer deeper and deeper until you sort of really understand. And I may add to that, I mean, like absolutely. And that, and, and that it's okay to actually not be totally sure what the highest use actually is. Like when I interviewed Dean, Dean Baquet for, for the book, I asked him, so what is the purpose now? What do you think the purpose of this meeting should be? And he, and he basically said, I think, I think we need to figure out like what, what is worthy of coverage and how do we cover it? How do we cover it? I mean, the mission of the New York Times you can see it on the top left of every, you know, of the newspaper under the website is all the news that's fit to print. And so at some level, what he started to realize is this is a meeting in which at some level we're, we're actually talking about what is news and what is fit. And so, in, I mean, even the example, I sat in on one of the meetings and even, you know, at some point, I remember the news of the day, someone said, there's a new, I won't get the exact example right, but there's there's a new study that came out about heart disease. Can we, it's a massive study and they're kind of making their pitch for it. It should get a notification, right? Meaning, meaning like if you sign up for notifications, it goes out to, it pushes out on everybody in the world who has a notification you know, on for the New York Times. And then in the room, someone else said, yeah, but do we really want to get into the business of putting notifications of studies. What if another study debunks the study? Are we then going to issue a notification, a correction? And, and on one hand, they were talking about a technical decision. But on the other hand, because of the ways, and, and, and Dean Baquet is the first person to say they don't always get there, right? It's, it's a practice to nourish. They don't always get there in the quality of the conversation, but they're actually asking, like, what's the purpose of a notification? This is a very new use. This is the the technology has changed. 
the, the, the way people consume news has changed. Our ability to grab attention has changed. Like what is the, what are the ethics of notifications? But you can't, rather than just kind of having those philosophical debates, he was creating a structure so that through practical daily decisions, the key minds in the paper who should be thinking about this are able to practice thinking about the core questions of the paper as they emerge. Yeah, because there's an incredible amount of power with that decision, which is why understanding the true purpose of like when you actually send that is so important. And I think maybe one of the areas that people can get caught up in these meetings is really understanding like who has authority, who is the host. And I think one of the things that we experience in the workplace is that sometimes there's unwanted authority in a meeting. Maybe there's the the meeting hijacker who completely like disregards the agenda and wants to just get their opinions put forward. And then there's also sometimes we get influenced by the highest paid person in the room's opinion. And you know, I think these are just things that we experience in the workplace. But one of the things that you make really explicit is like that there's the role of the host and that the host needs to have generous authority when it comes to creating that container. Can you just share why that's such an important term? Sure. So, I, I mean, I, I think basically every group, every relationship, even between two people, but every group has power dynamics. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I think the, the first kind of when I'm working with leaders or organizations and someone says, like, you know, we just want to have a we just want to have a nice meeting. We don't we want power dynamics to to not be in the room. I start laughing in part because like power is not a bad thing. It's just something that happens when people come together that at the simplest way for me to describe it in the context of a gathering is is decision making. If we just say power is decision making. And that could be everything from how should we spend this conversation, like to a group of colleagues saying, you know, hey, where should we go for lunch? And how does that decision get made? Is it the the the, the intern always decides and that's the ritual? Or is it the boss always says it and everyone pretends to go with, the, you know, what she likes? Um, but basically, if you think about gathering as a social contract, a constitution, if you will, of what is the purpose here and what are the rights and responsibilities of those involved? The host, the person who's convening this meeting, has a responsibility to basically set up the power dynamics or create enough safety and integrity in the structure and across and within people so that the group can do its work. And so what do I mean by that super practically? You know, I well, first of all, I define generous authority as any time as the intentional use of a host's power for the good of a group to achieve its purpose. And in some contexts, that might be as practical as, you know, you have a orientation session for new employees and it's a group of 10 or a group of 40 or a group of 80. And you start noticing that during the question round, the same two people keep asking all the questions or keep answering all the questions or keep wanting to kind of be heard. And because one hasn't created a norm ahead of time of how we're going to all interact. If you just let, you know, let whoever happens to be raising their hand over and over and over again go, you're actually not protecting the rest of the group. So whether it's it, it's basically creating a container, one of the examples in the book is the the American political advisor, David Gergen. He used to run these kind of large, he may still, I'm not sure, are large they're called forums um, at the Kennedy School of Government in in Cambridge, and and heads of state or different leaders, activists would come and speak to the students and to the community, and there'd be a thousand people in the room or fifteen hundred people in the room, 
And David Gergen would, the person would speak, and then David would be in charge of taking all the questions. And before, and rather than just going up and saying, okay, questions, he would say, this is how this is going to work. There's mics moving around. Um, we're going to try to get through as many questions as possible. And let me remind you that a question ends in a question mark. And if you, we're not, we don't have enough time to, we are here to hear the speaker speak, not each other speak. That's for a different time and place. And people would laugh. And then inevitably, every, you know, almost every single time, a few people ask their questions. And then there's always somebody who, you know, takes a deep breath and then just starts talking for two minutes. And, and before, rather than letting that person talk for two minutes, David will cut them off and say, a, qu a question begins with a question. A question begins with a question. A que Let me remind you, a question begins with a question. And you can sort of see the audience tensing up and then kind of, you know, tittering and laughing because it's a little bit tense. But David is protecting the group and he's protecting the purpose of the group. And he understands what might actually seem mean or cruel or rude in the moment is actually protecting the integrity of the purpose, which is to allow as many people as possible to thoughtfully engage with the speaker. And that's that format for that forum. And that doesn't have to be the format for every forum. But in every time we meet or gather, when we orient our guests as to what are the rules and how can you how can we best coordinate this group so that we're we can achieve our achieve our purpose? That is a generous act. Yeah, and I think when you were sharing that story, I know for me, like I was definitely picturing rooms that I've been in when I was like, I wish someone had generous authority right now. Yes, because like we're all watching it happen, and we're like, this is not why we were here, and we're, you know, we're losing time. We are, we only have you know, half an hour for this conversation. This is critical, and it's just being sidetracked. So I I, I hope. I hope that was resonating with other people about why generous authority is so important. And I would just say, I think part of generous authority so that you're setting your people up for success is sharing in a, ahead of time, in the invitation, in, in your opening comments, really, you know, what the, what the norms are or how this is going to work. And it can be playful. Like David Gergen uses a lot of humor in what he does, but you're not setting people up for success by kind of you know, bopping them on the head when they've broken some unspoken norm. It's actually helpful when we make explicit. You know, President Obama, when he was president, learned of a study, I'm told, that in um, even in Harvard Business School, that I think is now majority female students, the male students are more likely to raise their arms, raise their hands and ask a question than the female students, even in a place that is kind of as you know, as gender paired as possible. Gender. And he realized that that the norms are so strong culturally and individually that 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 is just a dynamic. And so when he learned that study, he used his power as a host in his press conferences and in union halls, any place he would go and like speak publicly during the Q&A, he would say, and you can see videos of him doing this, he would say, now I'm going to take a bunch of questions and we're going to go, and he used this language. I don't know if he'd use this language now. We're going to go boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. And people would, you know, kind of be, you know, laugh or, or, or not laugh, just, just be surprised. And if, if no woman would raise their hand, they, he would wait. And it was his kind of, you know, one man uh, crusade to use his power in a very specific way to try to counterbalance the gender dynamics he began to realize existed. Um, and so there's a million ways to do this, but to create, but part of generous authority is the generosity to explain how this is, this can go so that you're setting people up to understand what the rules of the road are for this moment. 
And I think we're seeing that play out in virtual gatherings right now is that like, you know, the host needs to be explicit with some of those things when it comes to like, not just saying, all right, does anyone have any questions? And just letting everyone sit there on mute and not knowing who should go or the idea of popcorning, like everyone goes and you pick the next person, like there's little tools. And we'll touch on this a little bit later, but yeah, that's such a a powerful example of just examples of, um, you know, generous authority. But I wanted to um, switch gears now and focus on, you know, some of the gatherings that are happening right now inside of companies, especially around the collective re-entry that we're all trying to navigate, you know, the difference between work and place. And then at the end of this little section, I would love to touch on your gathering makeover series and some of the learnings. But, you know, right now, you know, there's conversations happening every single day about in-person, hybrid, remote. And this is a, a really rare window for companies to redefine where, why, around what and how they meet. And I feel like as organizational leaders around the world are trying to navigate this, maybe we can help them and we can talk about how we gather in each of those settings and, um, you know, help them actually have better conversations. And maybe one of the conversations that they're having right now is about this re-entry to the workplace. And I wanted to ask you this. Um, you believe that the question, do you want to return to the office, is the wrong question to be asking right now. Why is that? Because it assumes that we are going back to something and that it assumes that we haven't, as individuals or as our entire assumption of what work is, is stagnant and is, is sort of hasn't changed and is sort of stuck like a, like a time freeze in March 2020. And, and so when, when we ask the question, you know, do you want to go back? It's first of all, it's a binary. It's a binary question, and and elicits you know one of two options. Um, but it also ignores all that has been learned and invented during these last sixteen months. And um, and 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 instead, I would ask. And and you mentioned the gathering makeover. You know, so much of what we what we did in that um, that free public series was helping people reimagine and really have the conversations with their teams and within their companies to determine for each group or each company what might be right. And, and I may, I'll just share those four questions because I, I think they're, they're incredibly helpful questions. But I also have seen that by asking them together in groups, a change process occurs through the experience of answering and sharing and comparing those answers. So instead ask, number one, what did you long for or miss when we couldn't gather because of the pandemic, when we were only gathering virtually? You know, what did you want to, like, almost when did you want to, like, push through the screen and wish you could just reach through or show somebody something? Or, you know, when were the moments where you just were so frustrated that you couldn't just kind of reach through the screen and, I don't know, put a post-it note on something? Or be able to actually pull someone aside and not have everyone see in the same exact time or meet somebody in the hallway. The second, what didn't you miss during the last 16 months and perhaps are ready to discard? The third, what was invented? What surprised you about how we gathered virtually um, or in the pandemic that you actually want to bring forward? And then fourth, what might we invent or experiment with now? And and I think part of looking at looking at companies and organizations kind of grappling, part of this is also around authority and where should the decision lie? Should it be a hand-me-down decision as Apple tried to do in you know, June 2021 to say, okay, all employees are going to be back three days a week. Um, 
or is it a virtual kind of first or virtual heavy organization um, like Dropbox has announced, but they are creating, as I understand it, studios that any team can then decide when they want to meet in person. They can book a local studio. I mean, people are really experimenting um, right now. And I think that the opportunity people have is to actually think about where, what decisions should be company, company chosen? What decisions should be team made? And what decisions should be individual? And how do we, as teams and as leaders, begin to have the conversations that set the norms and boundaries? For some of it's super practical. If 90% of the people are in the office and 10% are, are Zooming in or Microsofting, teaming in, or you know, basically virtual, and do we, does everyone have to go, come in through their device for kind of equity, digital equity, or is that punishing those who are in person and that the in-person group around a table will be in one screen and the two people who are Zooming in will be on other screens? These are questions that are really up for debate and there are trade-offs in each. But part of the opportunity, I think, particularly right now for HR professionals is to begin to add some expertise to the conversation of best practices and give some guidelines to people so that there's actually distinction making in when and how we're meeting based on the need and where people are each time you meet. And those trade-offs are tough because, yeah, in some ways you might say, well, for, you know, equity and inclusion, everyone needs to be on their own screen. And I've, I've seen jokes about this already of people saying, office wanted me to come back for collaboration. And then the collaboration is just everyone on their own screen again on a Zoom, but they just happen to be in the same office. And then, you know, in some yeah. ways, maybe you're not actually va- valuing the time that the people have spent to get into the office to have that in-person connection. Um, you know, so there's all these certain like trade-offs. And I think one of the things that um, really stood out to me and that I think a lot of people are grappling with right now is before we make one of these decisions, a lot of us are trying these like hybrid gatherings. And you actually describe this as two simultaneous gatherings and that each one needs a digital host and an in real life host. And each has to be mindful of their own group while also being connected to this one experience we're having together. Do you think that there needs to be a facilitator that oversees the entire experience as well, as well as having what you call these like lighthouse facilitators who are responsible for their own containers? I think it depends on the the need, um, which I will always say, and the purpose and the size and and frankly the stakes of the gathering. So it really de- right. so if it's a if it's and the ratios. I mean, I think that so for example, if if we're talking about a hundred person. Like retreat or conference in the workplace, or or all hands, and fifty people are virtual and fifty people are in person. I think that and and it's it's a high enough stakes gathering that people want it to go well and that the experience of connection is incredibly important. Then I would say there should that that in a way it's almost like three gatherings. There's the there's the physical the, there's a group dynamic in the room. Then there's the virtual gathering and someone paying attention, ideally someone with some amount of authority or legitimacy, kind of taking care of those. And then there's actually a third gathering, which is the hybrid gathering, which is paying attention to the connection and interstitching between the room and the, you know, the digital digital folks. And sometimes that isn't necessary. It's not necessary. Like you may just want to have two pair almost parallel parallel processes where the people in the room can focus on their connection and the people virtually can focus on theirs. 
But if there is a purpose to connect the two, say, for example, you want to connect your globally remote staff with the people who are, you know, at headquarters, for example, then I would focus on, I'm making this up, but the first 10% creating of the meeting, creating virtual coffee sessions where perhaps the people in, in person take out their phone and have a chat with two people, you know, in a breakout room virtually, and then they put their phone away and then they come back for the rest of the meeting and be in person. So each of these are design choices, um, but it really depends on what the purpose of the meeting is and then who the constellation of actors or guests or players are and how and why you want to connect them for what purpose. And I, I think that's just a great example of showcasing like how complex it can be to sort of think about like all the nuances of a gathering. But when you spend that time actually getting some of these things, you know, done up front and really think about them, the entire experience is just way more powerful. And I remember um, a story that this is a very much like a, a finance salesperson's sort of style uh, story, but someone told me that like if eight people get together in a meeting for an hour and the, and the meeting isn't, you know, useful, you've just wasted an entire day's worth of work. Please think about why you come together and the purpose of it before you ask eight people to spend an hour together. Totally. I mean, at the end of the day, this is really about care, right? It's 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 yeah. treating the time that we have, the synchronistic time that we have as the most precious resources we have. And I often say, you know, people think the art of gathering, like, oh, she's pro-gathering. I'm actually not pro-gathering. I'm pro-discernment and yeah. and around gathering. And that if we treat this as a sacred and and prime real estate. That often, when we think about the thought that goes into it, we should probably be gathering better and less than kind of the default autopilot, just pull everyone in for every single for every single reason and every single meeting because we haven't fully thought through the need or the purpose, and we don't want to leave anyone out because we can't actually defend what the purpose is, so we can't defend exclusion. In this next section, I asked Priya a question that we soon realised could have been an entire separate episode. In my research for this podcast, I stumbled upon a tweet where Priya was referencing the TV show Succession. Straight away, I knew I wanted to ask her about famous workplace cultures and how they gather. So let's jump into that part of the interview where we learn about the do's and don'ts of gathering from the TV shows Ted Lasso and Succession. I kind of see Ted Lasso as a show where, you know, the implicit is explicit, where they make room for important conversations in the workplace. And Succession on the other side is like a show dedicated to like allowing watchers to be a fly on the wall where these gatherings of all sizes take place that seem to be lacking hosts. It's a constant <laughs> battle for authority and, totally. there's no, and there's no clear purpose. So totally. what, have you, what have you found fascinating maybe about those shows and their respective company cultures when it comes to gathering? I mean, this is an awesome question. Thank you for asking it. Um, what a lovely, lovely invitation. So I actually think the foil of these two shows is such a is such an astute comparison. And um, and in a sense, you know, um, in Ted Lasso, I think the ways that he gathers, he, I think he's doing a couple of different things as a character. And I apologize, just given our time, I won't summarize what the show's about. I mean, I guess it's basically it's an American coach who is brought in to kind of pull together this 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 British football team. And one of the things that I see him doing again and again is first of all, 
I think the qualities as a host of what Ted Lasso is doing. One is he's giving, he is seeing each of his guests and his guests being his, his football players, his soccer players. He is noticing each one. He's seeing what their needs are. He is, um, he's telling them why they're there and what their deepest purpose and their, and their values actually should be. He is elevating, like I'll, I'll, I'll analyze a couple of scenes that I thought were so interesting. So, and now it's been a while since I saw season one, but he has a, I think he's Pakistani kind of assistant coach and, um, and, and, and at sort of one point of the season, okay, spoiler alerts. Cause I don't know how to analyze this. if we don't actually talk about <laughs> yeah. what happens. Mass- but, massive um, spoiler alerts. Pause now. <laughs> so there's this one scene where, um, the assistant co- coach is basically saying like, Hey, I, I wrote up I wrote up some thoughts about each player. I think you. I think that. I think this is what you should tell them. And Ted Lasso first sees that um, that the guy that that there's merit, right? In a sense, he's his his assistant coaches are sub hosts. Technically, they have less power than he does as a head host. And he's empowering. He sees that his sub host is able to see a need in the group. And rather than doing it himself, he's pushing out his authority. He's sharing his authority to elevate the status of the junior coach. And he says, you do it. And then there's this beautiful scene where this, you know, previously kind of quiet and under the previous regime, water boy, like, you know, he was like in charge of the thermoses and refilling water cups, elevates and is able to, I mean, it's a funny, it's an interesting example where he basically goes around to every single player and he both says like what what they're doing that works and then he flips it and he basically calls them out on some element of their attitude or some element that's not working and if you watch that scene he he builds energy in the group by both honoring and seeing what each person's doing and then and then and then like embodies transgression which is he's like if you you know i can't remember exactly what he says but for each person he kind of insults them but in that cultural context that actually builds currency for the you know the dweeby assistant coach and makes people realize like oh my gosh you're seeing me you're seeing my behavior i'm being watched i'm being and he in each of those moments the the insults are equitable and i and i'm i'm kind of i'm being a little facetious here but there's a love in that which is like every single person is being seen and like loved on and judged to improve. And I would say there's a second scene that I think is beautiful where Ted Lasso, this really is a spoiler alert. He has to figure out how to remove the curse, right, of the of the soccer team. And he basically invents and makes up this ritual that is pretty profound to basically remove the curse of what happened to to, you know, to set that curse. And everybody has to bring at midnight, in the dark, at a, you know, strange time of day with risk, everybody has to bring a sacrifice, like an object of sacrifice that really means something to them. And on one hand, the story and the narrative, so there's a structure, there's, there's equal participation, there's a there's a belief that's shared and explained to say to relieve this curse, we actually each have to bring something that matters to us and burn it. But then while each person is willing to go and like show their object, 
they have to explain why they love the object that they have. This is my mother died and this is the last thing she gave to me. My cousin wasn't able to be a football player and this is, you know, and so this, so the fact that I'm here and he's there means so much to me. And through the structure of the ritual, they're building the body of the group and they're building psychological safety because they're each sharing a part of themselves in a way that then they're saying, I am interested in the re- re- the release of this spell and I'm going to burn this thing that means something to me. And through that sacrificial ritual, they die and then they're reborn, right? Metaphorically as a team. And, and Ted Lasso and the writers of that show, I think in so many ways, first show a very different type of a host um, through embodying the values he hopes to create in his team. But there's a lot of thoughtful, invisible structure um, that I think it, as a as a coach, he keeps seeing and assessing with his assistant coaches, what's the need now? What, where are the players at? What is it that we need to do in order to begin to shift what this group is and can be? And and to and to and the foil, how was that? <laughs> That was amazing. I feel like we could have done the whole episode just analyzing Ted Lasso. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Well, you're 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 asking the right questions because clearly I'm <laughs> I'm like this is so interesting. And then Succession, you're totally right. It's the foil. It's 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 all authority. It's all status. It's power consolidation in the father, and then it's. I mean, it's sort of like, and then and then he sets up, I mean, he's a leader of chaos. He sets up within his family structure and then within his company structure, fear and loathing, but in part ambivalence, right? It's like Joe Freeman, the feminist scholar, wrote this beautiful essay in the 70s or 80s called The, the Tyranny of Structurelessness. And part of Roy Kendall, uh, Kendall, wait, what's his name? Roy's, Roy Sr.'s power is the tyranny of structurelessness and the tyranny of ambivalence. And he's able to maintain his power and status because he keeps everybody else off balance. And in some cases in different seasons, like he turns up the volume so much that it's just cruel um, and so explicit and these kind of hazing rituals of cruelty. But but it's always... um, There's deep ritual and deep codes in that family system when they gather, whether it's around the Thanksgiving dinner or whether it's in their private airplane or their private jet. And the codes are basically that there is an authority figure and one does not fully know what might happen. And each person basically feels deeply unsafe and knows that, and, and that, and that power in that system is the, is proximity to the source in that moment. And in some ways, I frame succession as being this foil because I feel like maybe there there isn't uh, structure or power. But I think they're actually like what you brought up is that Logan Roy does actually think deeply about the container, and he gives everyone this false sense of hope that they could be a co-host, that they could be okay. the person who gets to like design the container with him. But like you said, like he's sort of like a master evil facilitator in so many ways because he knows how to play all these people against each other that can that allows him to continue to always have the power. Absolutely. And I think, you know, earlier I I said, you know, my I don't people think I need I, you know, I'm a, I'm about <laughs> gathering more. I think similarly gathering is not good in and of itself. Gathering is a tool. It can be used for mm-hmm. good, it can be used for evil. It can be used to make people feel connected, it can be made people to feel isolated. And it and and gathering is a form of power. 
And with that power comes responsibility and care. And some of the, you know, the greatest evil dictators or in history were phenomenal gatherers. And so I don't come into this with a naive lens, that, but I do come into it by saying that it goes back to our earlier conversation. It's like by, by wishing power away, you're doing no one any favors. You, we need to begin to understand how power is going to manifest in the groups that we are gathering and protect our guests and connect them and temporarily equalize them and think about what it actually looks like in a very practical way to create gatherings that allow uh, you know, people to be seen and safe and then do their best work. I mean, gathering well is also an extraordinary process for creativity, for collaboration, for breakthrough science. It's not just about how you're making people feel. It's also about what human beings are able to discover and to build when they're able to interact in ways that are fruitful. So, you know, for everyone who's been listening, I think we've all you know, got this now shared sense of understanding about the power of gathering, some of the terminology we should be thinking about, why they're important, and some of the conversations that maybe we avoid that we should be having. Uh, when it comes to just maybe some best practices or some things that you really want anyone listening to be thinking about when they plan their next gathering, what do you want to remind people of? <laughs> Well, um, first, thank you for having me. And if you remember nothing else, um, as you're listening and walking to this podcast, first, don't skip the purpose. Don't skip defining the purpose every single time you plan a gathering or you're thinking about a gathering. And the more likely we think we know what the purpose is, the more likely we are, we are not making it specific enough. So think about how to define what is the need every single time. And the more likely it's a recurring meeting or a meeting that people are doing all the time, the more likely the need needs to be more tightly defined. And then the way we open and the way we close matters. And so if you're creating a temporary alternative world every time you're gathering, how are you opening? What are you orienting people to? Are you playing a song or are you asking an opening question that connects the group? And then also, how do you close in ways that people will remember what has transpired and and have a sense of how they want to re-enter into the world? That's beautiful. And like I said, I tried to, like, in, in, interviewing you and um, knowing how much you sort of impacted my thinking about this space, that there was a lot of pressure to get this gathering <laughs> kind of right and think about it in a way. So I hope I was able to at least demonstrate some of the tools and techniques about gathering in this conversation for everyone listening as well. It was beautiful, and and um, and Damon, I've I've never been asked to analyze Ted Lasso and and Succession, so fortunately I had seen it. But that was like to me that was a beautiful example of um, of an of a, of a of using your power as a host to ask me a question that made me really have to think and not you know not say not say not go over well worn ideas, but actually have to make me analyze in real time. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. No worries. Yeah. When, when I think about the future of work and sort of my role here, I'm always looking at edge cases about how we can learn and improve the employee experience. So Priya, this has been an absolute pleasure. Maybe at the end of the um, you know succession season, we can do another episode to analyze <laughs> what went down and the art or the power of, of gathering within that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me and, um, and gather, gather well. A big thank you to Priya Parker for joining me on the Culture First podcast. Mm-hmm. 
Well, as you could probably tell, I was nervously excited to be able to sit down with Priya and talk about The Art of Gathering. Her work has not only impacted me personally, but has also been one of the core foundations of how we design experiences for our community here at CultureAmp. An episode highlight for me was definitely using the TV shows Ted Lasso and Succession to create a juxtaposition of how famous workplace cultures gather and the host's important role in creating a container. At the end of the interview, Priya invited you all to gather well. So here are some reminders on what you can do to gather better at work. A meeting category and a meeting purpose are different. We also shouldn't assume that the purpose of that meeting is obvious and shared. Now we know not to skip the purpose, but to make a meeting even better, go deeper. Go deeper by defining the purpose and making it as specific as possible. The more specific you can make it will help everyone understand why they are invited and the role that they need to play. And then finally, how you open and how you close are equally important. I feel like a lot of time is spent on the opening of a meeting and then we rush all the way through to the end and we're all trying to log off our video calls in haste because we need to go to another meeting to witness another opening. So if you're the meeting host, create space at the end to close the meeting. It will ensure that the purpose of the meeting is as clear at the end as it was at the start. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode because I definitely enjoy creating it. So I wanted to check back in with you. How did your meeting makeover go? I'd love to hear about how this episode has helped you with your gatherings. So please do reach out, let me know. You can either leave a review of this podcast with something that you learned or even tag us on social media with one of your takeaways. You can feel free to tag me at Damon Klotz and CultureAmp at CultureAmp so we can share it with the rest of our community. I've been your host, Damon Klotz, and this podcast is brought to you by the team here at CultureAmp, the employee experience platform. Head to cultureamp.com to learn more about how CultureAmp revolutionizes how over 25 million employees across 6,000 companies create a better world of work. Until next time, this has been the Culture First Podcast. I'm looking forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks.